Gentlemen, all men strive for gold in their life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. However, there is a certain type of man who goes the extra mile. He walks with the confidence of an eagle and giggles in the face of danger. He's a big, hairless, winning machine, and when he unzips his pants, he sees platinum. That's right. Manscaped would like to introduce you to their best and biggest ultimate hygiene bundle yet, the Platinum Package 4.0. Manscaped is the leader in below-the-waist grooming. Now trust them with the whole shebang. Join the 4 million women worldwide who have joined Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off, plus free shipping with code PFF. Manscaped's brand new Platinum Package 4.0 is the biggest bundle they've ever offered, giving you the bulk discount on Manscaped's top products. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code PFF. It's time you enjoy the finer things in life and get yourself a platinum package for your platinum package. What is up? Welcome to the September 8th edition of Talking Ball Jam Pack Show today. Week one of the NFL, which means we got a lot to get to. We're going to talk some balls, start off. Dr. Odds segment that we're going to be doing every single week. Teasing that here. Not going to tell you guys too much about what it is. You're going to have to listen to it. Kevin O'Connell interview. Minnesota Vikings head coach. First year head coach. He was super cool. A lot of interesting takeaways from that. Then we got to the movie club afterwards. I hope you watched American Underdog Story. If you didn't, I'll describe the whole movie to you. It's going to be electric. PVOOs, take grades. You guys sent in the speak pipes. I'm going to give you guys some take grades. And then a would you rather to finish it off. Let's dive right in and talk some ball, shall we? First thing I want to call out though, the PFF app. Go download in the app store. Leave a five-star review. It helps us out a ton if you do so. And I know I don't talk a ton about prospects. You know, the OG two-for-one draft days when me and Austin uh, first started up our podcast, we just went deep into draft prospects, all that stuff every single week. I know we don't do it as much. If you guys still have that itch, if that's something that interests you, go to the PFF app. I do a scouting notes now every single week, which basically covers everything I've seen over the weekend from draft prospects. This week, I focus on breakout draft prospects. I put videos in there, uh, my, my takes, other people's takes. It's a very kind of spot for you to go every single week if you're very interested in that sort of thing. Like I said, I don't get to talk about it enough on the podcast because a lot of NFL to cover, only so little time, but make sure to go check that out if that's something you're interested in. If, that, if not, just fucking keep listening. I don't care either way. All right. Next up, Zach Wilson, Jets quarterback, out until at least week four with that bone bruise that, I mean, this was compared to what you thought in the moment to what, you know, Dr. Chow was saying at the moment, obviously a positive, you know, still a better case scenario than out for the season. But man, three weeks without him and obviously rolling with Joe Flacco, just not the best start to evaluate the guy you thought was going to be franchise quarterback, but didn't show year one. Like he's going to need to show something quickly. Uh, I, I definitely just feel for Jets fans because left tackle off the season, Kai Beckton. Like you, your cornerstones that you've drafted the past few years just can't get off the ground. So tough to really evaluate then Joe Douglas, Robert Sala, like, and Zach Wilson, obviously, when. Your best players aren't seeing the football field. So that news dropped today. Very unfortunate for them. Next up, this one, I had to talk about this one because the NFL 
tweeted out a graphic that has literally every single one of their analysts picking the Buffalo Bills to win the Super Bowl. Do you think this is propaganda? I, I, I don't because I don't know whose agenda it would be to put, pump the Bills up this hot. You know, Bills fan base is fantastic. Nothing against that. Like, they, they're they great, but they're not like— the best fans in the NFL, yeah. right? Bills Mafia. Like, they, they, I think it's because they know it's going to get gassed up by Bills fans. Like, they know— they're, they want to ingratiate themselves into well, such that's a what I'm base. saying, right? They, it like, it's probably like, is it for the engagement? Because, I mean, we talk about it almost every episode, mm. right? Like, a lot of these tweets are just purely based on, like, I know I'm going to get, I know I'm going to do numbers. I know that's like 2,000 likes and retweets automatically. What I think it is, is that everyone is of the opinion that the AFC, just from a pure top to bottom talent perspective, is much, much better than the NFC this year. Like, it's not even close. And everyone, so everyone wants someone from the, like, would then pick someone from the AFC, the better conference, to win the Super Bowl. And you go through and you look at the AFC North. No real clear-cut picture of who's going to win. You got the Ravens and the Bengals as favorites, but it's a coin flip at the moment from an odds perspective, which one's going to win. You look at the AFC West. I mean, Chargers, Chiefs, Broncos, all could win the West. So there's no clear-cut, whereas if the Bills don't win the East, it's a surprise. So they're going to be the one, two, three, or four seed. Like it would be a massive upset for that not to happen. I think the Dolphins were like plus 450 had the second best odds in the division. Like they, it would be such a huge upset if they do not win the East. So everyone's like, okay, I can count on them being in the mix. And then I can't count on these other teams necessarily being in the mix. So it's a safer pick than everyone else in the AFC, which is, I think, kind of what everyone's fallen back to is that kind of rationale. But also it does help that the fan base is going to gas you up when you pick, pick them. So I picked them to go to the Super Bowl. I am picking the Packers to win a Super Bowl. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more later um, in the PVOO segment, but that's neither here nor there. They're also signed Dawson Knox to an extension, one of the more underrated tight ends in the NFL, in my opinion. Heck of an athlete. Um, I, I think an integral part to that offense, it looked different. I, I think I said it in the, it was the Jags game last year where they did not have him, and the offense kind of fell to its knees. And it's because he's kind of that safety, I, I hate to use the word safety blank because I think it's overused, but I do think he runs a route tree that is very much like Josh Allen. One, one's not there, two's not there. I'm going to Dawson Knox. You know, like he's going to Dawson Knox. And in that Jags game, one, two weren't there. He he wasn't going to anyone. He was not. Uh, he was just flustered, and that was why it was one of those worst games of the year. Also happened to be when Dawson Knox didn't play. So, um, good extension for them. Last thing to get to here on the Talking Ball segment, Sunday Night Football changed their logo. And if you want to throw it up on the YouTube, if you're listening to the podcast, just go search it out. It's not even, it's calling it a logo, I think is factually incorrect. Those are words in a font. There is nothing more. It is, they've gone the Eagles route. They've gone the Fashion House route. They've, they have debranded. It's the trend. It's called debranding. If you don't know yeah, what I'm talking yeah, about, go look it up. That, that's very in. The Super Bowl logo yes. did Which the same thing. was an absolute crime against yep. humanity to change. Very, it was fucking when the Packers won the Super Bowl that they changed to the stupid just uh, one Lombardi right in the center because the logos before that were sick. Like it, it lost, it loses personality the more we do that. And like the debranding effort makes sense for something that has their hands in a lot of different things. So, like, it, it's very popular in um, basically fashion right now. You know, fashion houses, 
any, any fashion brand to have a very simplistic brand. So you can like put it on a lot of stuff, different things, and it doesn't look bad. That's kind of like the purpose behind it is that it's versatile. You're Sunday night football. There's one fucking thing you're on. You're on football. You, you, there's no, let's put Sunday night football on a t-shirt and sell it. No one's going to buy that shit. It is, you are a TV show that happens at eight o'clock every Sunday. You are nothing more than that. You are a brand itself. So then have some unique fucking identity to you instead of being identity-less, which is kind of the whole point of debranding. So I, I'm, I'm getting pissed because the, the Super Bowl was already like, no one likes that. No one likes the new trend of Super Bowls being the blandest logos ever. You can't tell them apart. You show me a random Super Bowl logo, I couldn't tell you which one it is. I could so, tell you last year's. Mm, yeah. I could tell you 45 too. But that, I just hate the trend, man. Hate the trend. If you haven't heard by now, Underdog Fantasy is the best and easiest place to play fantasy football this summer. We've all been there in fantasy football leagues. It's Sunday morning and you're digging through news reports trying to figure out whether to start your stud wide receiver that tweaked his hammy or you have a player on your team that hasn't been getting in the end zone. And then one week, he suddenly goes off for 30 points on your bench. With Underdog Fantasy, all the stress of who to start each week is lifted off your shoulders because it's best ball format. Draft your teams before the season starts and get the best score in your lineup each week. Right now, you can draft an Underdog's Best Ball Mania 3 tournament to take your shot at $10 million in total prizes. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with the promo code PFF. That's right, $100 in free money. Also, if you play 10 of those 10 of those dollars using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So basically, you are paying less than what you would pay at PFF.com. And it's a little, little cheat code there for you. Underdog drafts close before NFL kickoff. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the app store. Play $10 with code PFF and draft in your best ball mania team today. Get ready for the NFL week one action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Bet just $5 on any football game and get $200 in free bets instantly. And now everyone can experience the thrill of DraftKings early win promotion. Get up seven, you win. Bet on any NFL team of your choice. And if your team leads by seven points at any point during the game, you get paid instantly. Even if your team loses, DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet on any football game. That's PFF only at DraftKings Sportsbook. 21 plus in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for terms and resources. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the Tennessee red line at one 800 889-9789. In New York, call 877-8-HOPANY or text HOPANY 467-369. One per customer. Minimum $5 positive wager. $200 issued as $825 free bets. All right. That's it for the Talking Ball segment. Let's get to Dr. Odds here. Breaking down some betting from NFL Week 1. And now, glad to be joined by the one, the only Dr. Odds, it's actually Eric Eager. I, I, I didn't want to, te I didn't tease the people, but I, I came to you with the idea of Dr. Odds, obviously, because you're a big Dr. Oz fan, um, as we all are. And I <laughs> say that obviously sarcastically, but instead of working on our physical health here, we're going to work on our financial health and bring in Dr. Eric Eager. So Eric, the resident betting expert at PFF, do you have rules that you 
hold yourself to about what to bet, how much to bet, or something like that? Uh, you know, usually you try to bet with the same percentage that you have an edge. So, um, you know, uh, often most people, you know, who do that will use what's called Kelly criterion, which is basically like proven mathematically to like increase your bankroll the most, um, and reduce your chance of ruin the highest. But, you know, there are, there are obvious issues with that in the, in the sense that you don't necessarily know what your edge is, you know, only God knows what your edge is really. And then, um, you know, there are limits to, to books and stuff like that as well. So I, I generally speaking, I think that the only rule is to bet the best price available. And to do that, you have to have like a lot of different sports books. So obviously we have a partnership with MGM, uh, DraftKings, FanDuel, you know, all of those. You're oftentimes, you know, just going to be able to reduce your chance of losing just by betting a good number, minus 105 versus minus 110 or minus 114 or something like that. That will give you... Uh, a great deal of of uh, benefit, even if you don't know how to handicap the games. And then obviously handicapping uh, will, will help you here at PFF. Yes. So I, I've made rules for myself for this upcoming season. I want you to tell me if they are dumb or smart, but it's basically just keep myself in check because I know how I can get sometimes uh, 1-800-HOPE-NY if you're in New York. But I know I can get sometimes about betting at the blackjack table. I can get a little loosey-goosey with my betting pattern. So I'm limiting myself for one unit per bet. I am making a list of bets I like prior to consulting green line and then only betting the ones that match up. And then I'm betting my top three prop plays from my prop mismatch article that I'm dropping every week on Thursdays at pff.com. That's it. And then one bet per week gets two units. The one I feel the best about gets two units and you'll help me decide every Thursday heading into the season. Dumb, smart. What are your thoughts on that strategy? I think anybody will tell you, make your own numbers, right? And that's kind of what you're doing. You're saying, okay, I'll look at the games and I like, here's the ones I like. And then you consult differently. I think almost always, you know, psychologically, you always anchor to, um, you know, what we first see. And so if what you first see is your own opinion, uh, given how, you know, uh, I've told you this before, I think you're probably <laughs> you're the smartest football person that I know and, and at this company specifically like you're probably a decent amount of the way there. And then, you know, any smart person, I think, you know, probably isn't incorporating everything. And that's why going to the model and saying, okay, if the model supports this and I initially supported it, it's probably a good bet. Uh, I, I don't hate either vetoing plays that you like and, and um, the model doesn't like. So I think that that's good. Um, and I also think like player props are where to go. Like I bet uh, an embarrassing amount of money on DJ Uwilungalele under 228 passing yards the other night, <laughs> and uh, and even though that game was like was turning towards Clemson heating up a little bit and ended up coming home, and you know that bet to me was a much better bet than betting either uh, money or either side or total. Just the total actually pushed, so <laughs> the number was actually dead on. But the but the side, it's like you know if Clemson doesn't get two block punts, they probably don't cover that game, and so. A lot of variance there. There's less variance, I think, uh, in with individual plays relative to the market. Yeah, I'm probably going to be three per week. I said three per week in the props. Those are probably going to be... Uh, I may not have three per week in the lines over-unders that match up. So uh, that may be where the mo majority of my money ends up going. Let's get, though, now to your best bets of the week. What bets do you feel great about heading into week one of the NFL season? Yeah, this one is weird because you, we've seen a lot of movement towards certain teams like Kansas City is now minus six when they open minus three. And every sharp person I know is on Chiefs. They're not on the Chiefs now at minus six, right? There's a mm -hmm. there's a 
a breaking point there. There's two bets I really like, and I think you're going to like one of them. Um, but the first one is I like Las Vegas going to Los Angeles and getting three and a half. That number has sort of stayed pat. I'm not high on the Raiders this year, but this is the uh, they're they're weak in weak link systems. They're weak in the secondary. They're weak in the offensive line. And for a team like that who has talent everywhere else on the roster, it's never going to be better than it is now, right? Because once injuries start happening, once poor plays starts happening, the Raiders are probably going to crumble. But right now, they have you know they're as healthy as they're going to be the rest of the season. Adams. You know, Renfro, you, you look at Los Angeles, one of their big free agent acquisitions is out in J.C. Jackson. And, and then the last part, which is really hard to handicap, but I, I do this when Carolina is playing at home against Washington because a lot of people in the, in the Carolinas were Redskins fans when they were kids. I also will do this with when Vegas goes plays in L.A. The, the, the Raiders were the Los Angeles Raiders from like 1982 to 1994. Like Ice Cube and all of his friends are Raiders fans, and they all come to this game. And so there's like no home field advantage. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and bet the Raiders getting three and a half. That's my first one. What do you think, Mike? I like that one. But there's some back that, like you mentioned, J.C. Jackson's out. You're going to have to have a full secondary to go up against this Raiders receiving core. So, yeah, I'm with you on that one. Was not one of my ones that I hit, but I like that play. The the other one I think you already have have hit because I've watched your your show with Trevor Sikama. Just, it's just football every single day um, so far. Um, but I will take this as well. Green Bay going into Minnesota. Um, a, there's a lot of Packers fans in that stadium. The home field advantage usually is pretty good for Minnesota. But in this game, I think you have to throw it out a little bit. Uh, and I think everybody's looking at this. And everybody loves the purple this time of year. Every single year, you sort of add it up mathematically. So Kirk Cousins is a pretty good quarterback. Justin Jefferson's an amazing player. They're not that injured right now, which is good for them because that's really what's hurt them all season. But I think the Packers are still strong where the Vikings are weak. The Packers' offensive, you know, I think at the line of scrimmage, the Packers are going to dominate this game. And, you know, the offensive line is getting healthy. They already are pretty good. And the Vikings' D-line has not been able to stop the run in forever. And, you know, the Packers are going to lean on that run game with with Jones and with Dylan. And if you run the play-action game, like, I just don't see how – you know, they're not going to be wide receivers running wide open. I also think Rodgers, having lost two of the last three games he's played against Minnesota, um, is going to be, I think, a little bit salty about this one. They're also going to be trying to avoid the 38-3 loss that they had at the hands of the New Orleans Saints last year in Jacksonville. All those things put together, I think, gives the Packers a decided edge here. Now, this is a game, if you're a Minnesota fan, you really caught the Packers at the right time. I think this is going to be the weakest the Packers are all year. I see them as a Super Bowl team. But I, I just, you know, whenever – if you give me Rodgers as a short favorite against Kirk Cousins, I don't care what else is happening. I'm going to take him. Yeah, that is one of the four I did match up with Greenline on. So, yeah, uh, no, homerism aside, if Elkton Jenkins and David Bakhtiari play, which they're supposed to, is was the word early in the week. Obviously still a lot to be decided. If those two play, I feel good about the Packers in that game. Like If they don't – Maybe that changes a bit if they do. I feel good about the Packers. All right, what's a sucker bet for the week that maybe people are trending towards? Maybe that's getting pumped up that you're like, hey, let's push the brakes. That one's uh, probably not where I'd lean. Yeah, this is, it's really important to you know be able to reevaluate your old opinions when when things ha- when things move against you. And this is one where I liked I, I like Washington season win total over. I like 
Um, you know, I like what Scott Turner did last year. If you look at like all the stuff I, you know, we all tweet about, he did it motion play action, uh, negotiating box counts. He was a good offensive coordinator last year. And like Antonio Gibson averaged like five yards a carry when the play was perfectly blocked. He was horrendous last year. And Taylor Heineke, if you didn't give him play action was averaging like 5.1 yards in attempt. So we all look at Carson Wentz and we're saying, okay, he's an upgrade for sure. I don't think he's good, but he's an upgrade. And you had Brian Robinson Jr. from Alabama, who was going to be an upgrade over Gibson before he got shot in the leg. And, you know, this game opened minus three and a half to Washington. Um, and sharp bettors have done nothing but bet the Jaguars. And in fact, when the big movers, the the right angle sports of the world, made all their big bets when limits went up earlier this week, they bet heavily on the Jaguars to the point where this guy thing got below two and a half. So right now, Washington is... Minus two and a half. That shows an edge on PFF green line. But it's hard for me when I know like the NFL betting markets is as efficient as it gets. And if a if a if the market moves, you know, off of three, that's you know, nine percent of games land three. So if the market's gonna move that much based upon a, a group's bet, I'm gonna go maybe with that. I'm not I'm not gonna bet the Jaguars, but I'm not gonna bet Washington anymore than I already have. And so I, to me, I think that that's sitting there as a sucker bet. Jaguars terrible last year. Washington improved, but there are some very credible people who are on Jacksonville this week. So I'm going to lay off that game. Yeah, I'm staying away from the Jaguars until I know what the hell it looks like. You know, like everyone, Trevor Lawrence, from the opinion we had of him coming out of Clemson to the opinion or to what we saw as a rookie was night and day. So what we see now in year two, like I really have no clue what to expect. You look great in the preseason, sure, but it is the preseason. So yeah, I would stay away from them until we really see what Lawrence is going to look like this year. All right, what is your DGen bet of the week? The bet that is not seeing a lot of cash flow, is not seeing the handle that, you know, some of the bets we've discussed already is, but that you like nonetheless. Yeah, actually, I'm just going to, I'm going to steer, um, you know, I, I'm going to steer the people towards green line here. I don't know if this is necessarily as degenerate as it maybe could be, um, but our own by our, our friend David Sofaro loves both of these teams, but he's a huge Oregon State fan. And I watched them against Boise absolutely dismantle that team. I actually do like Oregon State, uh, basically pick them minus one, whatever, you know, at Fresno against Fresno State. I, I like that one a lot. Um, I also think unders are probably a pretty good play there. They have a great defense, good, good secondary as well. So that's one that I really like. And, you know, if I go to, if I venture into another sport, uh, I think that the Chicago Sky against the uh, Connecticut Sun, it's going to be the rubber, the, the rubber match, the fifth game. It's tomorrow, Thursday night. If you uh, it, 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 Look, if things aren't going well for you in the Thursday night game, you can turn uh, and bet the Chicago Sky to pull it out and to get into the WNBA Finals for the second straight year. I love, I love it. I love it. I will not be making that turn or making that bet because I'm going to be all eyes on the game no matter what happens. But... I still love it nonetheless. All right, my three prop plays. I'm going to give these to you real quick, get your take on them, and then we'll get to my, uh, you'll help me decide my two-unit bet of the week, and then we'll get you out of here. All right, my three prop plays. First one, Jonathan Taylor, Houston Texans. Over 94.5 rushing yards, over 20.5 carries. Splitting it, splitting my unit between those two. Texans had the sixth worth run defense last year. Last year, he went for 14 and 145, 32 and 143. I think the only reason this line is as low as it is, or these numbers are as low as it is, because Frank Reich said this offseason he doesn't want him to lead the league in rushing or whatever, the whole thing about his touches and whatnot. 
but they don't have left tackle figured out. I don't think they want to get Matt Ryan killed either. And this is a soft as toilet paper run defense in Houston that has made no upgrades. Made no upgrades over the course of the offseason. And you got Lovey Smith still running Tampa too. So I'm leaning the over on those numbers. Yeah, Otherwise, I think that you know Taylor last year would have gone over that prop in basically every game but one, two, three, four. And then the first actually the funny thing about last season was Taylor was very 1997 Barry Sanders-esque with this 56 yards, 51 yards, 64 yards in his first three games. After that, he went over the prop in every game but three until he got to week 17. And this is where I get a little nervous, right? The Colts week one of 2020, they went to Jacksonville. They lost as eight and a half point favorites. Um, You know, obviously they went to Jacksonville last year and lost as like 13, 14 point favorites. Now this is Houston. So it's indoors. Matt Ryan is going to be, you know, but the the sharp betting group that I talked about bet this game down from eight and a half to seven. Now that could play in the Jonathan Taylor favor because if the game's sort of a one touchdown game, then they're going to lean on him more yeah. than if it's a three They'll touchdown game, right? They might take him out all all entirely. Um, so if I'm you, I'm probably putting more. I probably put three quarters of a unit on the on the yardage and one quarter of the unit on the, the right. attempts because I think Taylor can be effective with fewer attempts. He averaged. 9.5 yards per carry when the play was perfectly blocked last year. Yeah. That's going to happen with, against Houston. Uh, the plays will be perfectly blocked fairly frequently. Um, I just don't know if he's going to get the volume for you to get over that 20 and a half. And I think to your point, like what is the scenario where he goes over the, the, the attempts prop, but doesn't go over the yardage prop, Mike? Um, there is none. There's basically so like I think that's yeah. the argument so, just to bet the, the, the yardage because I think Smart. Yeah. you're going you're going to if he if he has a good game he's going to go over the yardage prop and he might go over the attempts prop but he there are a lot of situations where you might just leave money on the table by taking both because he goes 15 for 115 and two touchdowns and they take him out in the third quarter yeah I like that they talked me into that one already all right next one and we talked about this on the show right after I say don't bet the Jaguars but I do believe Trevor Lawrence at the very least will stop throwing interceptions the way at the rate he did last season. So under one under a half interception for Trevor Lawrence against the Commanders is plus 127. And the other half of this is the, the Commanders do not have ball hawks in the back end. They had a bottom 10 coverage unit, coverage grade among anyone in the NFL. Really made no changes to this unit. You have Benjamin St. Juice, who's never had a pick in his life. William Jackson, who had two interceptions last year, which was a career high. Only three the rest of his career. Cam Curl didn't have a single pick last year. Bobby McCann had four, but that was the most he's ever had. Never had more than two in any other single year. Jamin Davis didn't make a play in coverage all season long. So I just don't trust this team to get picks. So Trevor Lawrence, when it's juiced up to plus 127, I'll take that bet. I like I like that. You know, plus 127, when you, when you look at that, you basically need um, 44% uh, break-even probability. So you basically have to assume that he doesn't throw an interception in... 44% of games. You look at Carson Wentz, year two under uh, Doug Peterson, he only threw seven interceptions in 13 games. Um, and and he, interestingly, he, you know, so that gets you basically no interceptions in what looks to be like, you know, 46%. So you, even if you just take that simple back of the envelope calculation, this is a positive EV play. You add to that the fact that Washington, you know, without Chase Young, um, a secondary that I think will be okay, but you also, I like I think I think Lawrence is gonna be on his best behavior this year too. So mm -hmm. I, I like that bet a lot and you're getting plus prices with it. Um 
by the way, you know, that's another, if you want a PFF plus subscription, there's a really easy way to model out. And I wrote about this on the site, turnover worthy plays and what percent, like how, how to convert a player's turnover worthy play percentage to their expected interception percentage. And to me, I think that's another one. Lawrence, I think, you know, threw a higher percentage of interceptions than you would expect from his turnover worthy play rate. So just by a regression alone, he should be better here. And you add Peterson to the mix. I think this is a good bet. All right, the last one. I'm not even going to get your take on this one, but Patrick Mahomes over two and a half touchdowns plus 131 plus money, that much plus money against a Cardinal secondary that is starting a cornerback that the Raiders didn't even want starting in their secondary. That's how bad things have gotten in Arizona. Like I said, I don't need to take on that. I know you're going to love that one. All those props, by the way, you can find on PFF's props tool. PFF's props tool likes the edge on all those props as well. So Something to think about. I'm going to give you my four other plays here. And then of all those bets, you're going to tell me what I should make as my two-unit bet. I have under in New England-Miami at 46.5, under that number. I have the Panthers at minus 1.5 against the Browns. I have the Packers minus 1.5 against the Vikings. And I did like the Texans at plus 8, but already moved to plus 7. So off of that bet, which of those six then? So I got six out there with the three props and the three other ones. Which of those six do you like as my two-unit bet the most? You know... It's rare that you get a an over that is sharp, right? Most of the time you like unders, right? Mm-hmm. I do like that New England-Miami under for sure. Um, but it's the Mahomes bet, isn't it, right? Like in what – I don't think – I don't think there's any way he doesn't blow torch Arizona on Sunday. And Pat's never lost in a dome um, or indoors. And, you know, some of those games have been absolutely absurd. So that's the one I like is the Mahomes over two and a half. Um I, I that's just one everybody should bet for the people. I love it. And I will be making that my two unit bet of the week. Eric, Dr. Odds, thank you so much for your time. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Take care. All right. That's the Dr. Odds segment with Dr. Eric Eager. I'll be tracking those bets all season. I'm not going to shy away. My betting record will be out there in the public. If I do absolute dog shit, you guys are going to hear about it. If I do great, not going to pump my chest. I'm not going to tweet it out ever, but you guys will know. Probably going to trend towards the former, not the latter, but we'll shall see. Start a Patreon and sell your picks. Mm. That's what you need to do. It could be in locks. Can you like lock a portion of a podcast? Like we do the uh, initial part. Yeah. I'm sh- I then think the Dr. Can, Odds portion, you got to pay five bucks for every week. I think you can. If I start cooking. I, I think you could do like a separate podcast on Patreon. Yeah. I, I To be honest with you, I should probably know more about that than I do because <laughs> it's kind of we're in never my realm of responsibility, locking. but like, I, yeah, I think you can do video, audio, and you do whatever you want. I am not going to lock any portion. The other thing I actually didn't mention in that, in my betting rules, I have a group chat with my brother and his brother-in-law, so his wife's brother, where we all th- send three NFL lines that we like independently of each other at the same time. We did it earlier on Wednesday. And if we all pick one line that we like, then we all chip in a, a amount of money that I am not going to disclose, but it's higher than I would like. And we bet that line together as a conglomerate and we, as a way of like checking each other. This week, we didn't have a single overlap, so we're not betting. We could go all 18 weeks without placing a single bet down, but that is our strategy that I, I'm just going to say right now is probably not going to do any better than just randomly picking games. So... um Awful betting onto actual football. I guess that's kind of actual football, but onto Kevin O'Connell, Minnesota Vikings head coach. Great interview with him. 
very soft-spoken dude. But you guys will see. Here it is. I'm here with Minnesota Vikings first-year head coach Kevin O'Connell. And seven years ago, it was just Kevin O'Connell. It was not Coach Kevin O'Connell. That was when you first got your job in the NFL as a QB coach for the Browns. That team went 3-13. and 13. You were fired after the season. But now you have a Super Bowl ring and you're a head coach. Do you ever take a step back? maybe in your free time when you're alone say, how the hell did I get here right now? How the hell in seven years did I get to this spot? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm an incredibly fortunate, you know, my football journey from playing to, to where I'm sitting now, um, you know, wins and losses and, and hard years, good years, all those things culminating with, uh, you know, a very, very special year last year with a lot of great players and coaches and a really great organization in Los Angeles, you know, you know, has had a tremendous impact on me, but I go back, um, you know, to all the different people that have helped form, you know, my football philosophy, help form who I am and who I want to be as a coach. And I just think about all those influences and, and I'm very, very thankful for, for the journey so far. That is a big reason probably why you got head coaching opportunities so early on at just 36 years old when you were hired 37 now. But you worked with, I mean, and for Bill Belichick, Sean McVay, Rex Ryan, Chip Kelly, Jay Gruden. I mean, the list goes on and on of people you've learned from and been with over the years. When you're thinking about how to be a head coach in the NFL or what you want to be as a head coach, are you taking bits and pieces from each or is there any one of those guys in particular that really impacted your style the most? Absolutely. I mean, I'd be... Um, I'd be lying if, if, if I did not say that uh, I think Sean McVay is a very close friend of mine and, and gave me an opportunity there in L.A. Um, but he has been probably the biggest influence on me just uh, from from seeing how you know, he's built a culture and a team and 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 really an organization there um, that reflects uh, a lot of the positive things, you know, and, and, and the, the things that make up uh, what we were able to accomplish last year. Uh, a lot of a lot of things behind the scenes. Sean has such a great impact on and influence on as the head coach uh, of that organization. You know those things uh, will forever stick with me. You know through this opportunity, absolutely. As I get a chance to to build things here myself and and with the great group of coaches and players that we have here. Uh, but but absolutely, some of those names you mentioned, each and every one of those guys. You know I think is. Has, has a piece in, in, in my football philosophy, in my coaching philosophy. Um, a, absolutely, I've been lucky and, and really fortunate to be around those guys. But, but uh, I only know one way to be, and that's authentic. And I, I think if I, if I pull everything that I possibly can from all those great influences and, and still be myself and, and be authentic and real, I'll be at my best uh, for our players. And that's what's most important to me. So you have, you know, a long-term deal with the Minnesota Vikings, but you went to 10 different cities in 15 years prior to this. How much did your wife hate you for that? Well, um, hate would be a strong word, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure she has some, you, you know, if you, you gave her some truth serum, there's been some times where she was uh, absolutely questioning, you know, the journey we were on. And, and uh, but I will say from day one, uh, she's been there every step of the way. And, and I think the one thing, you know, if there's any coaches out there listening at any level of football, um, they can they can attest to the fact that uh, behind every great coach, uh, there's normally a, an unbelievably special uh, spouse that, uh, you know, supports you in every way, understands what it means to commit to this profession and ultimately what it takes to, uh, you know, build something and, and be a part of something special and um, and hopefully she, if she, if she was listening, she would feel every bit a part of that because she absolutely is. 
and, and my kids as well. So it's been an unbelievable journey. We've been a lot of places, uh, met a lot of great, great people in, in every organization we've ever been with. Um, and that's absolutely continued here in Minnesota. Um, great group, great ownership, uh, great support staff. And, and then our players and coaches have been phenomenal to work with early on. So I've always been curious, you know, in L.A., it was kind of Sean McVay's show. That's his playbook. He's play calling. How much are you on the side as the offensive coordinator kind of developing your own playbook, developing, you know, stashing your own plays and methodology to kind of say, you know, when I get to run the show, this is what mine's going to look like, even if it's not even if, you know, you have to run his playbook when you're when you're there out in L.A. Well, I think that's the great thing about, uh, you know, coaching for Sean and, and being in the role as the coordinator that I that I was for him is just how collaborative he is. And there wasn't a lot of need for me to stash a lot of things because I could bring things to him and and, you know, really collaborate with Matthew and, and collaborate with our staff and and, and really be a part of a, a special game planning process that culminated with us being a really good offense and, and having the ability to play a lot of different ways and attack people a lot of different ways and overcome the adversity that inevitably hits, um, you know, every offense in, in, in this league. Um, but it all goes back to Sean because of his willingness and how it's built uh, there to, you know, allow you to be at your best and, and have an impact on what goes on there. So I, it's not only helped me, you know, feel comfortable in that role, but it's it's definitely prepared me uh, for for the way I want to do things here. And and it's not going to be about me. It's not going to be about any one way or the other. It's going to be about the best and right way. That's why you you, you know you go uh, through uh, the hiring process to build a staff you want uh, to have side by side with you every single day. And and then ultimately, that's just been confirmed for me having having got a chance to really work with these guys that we put together here in Minnesota. So when you are coming up with a playbook or coming up with a game plan for a, a, any game in particular, how much are you balancing, hey, I love these plays and how they can attack whatever we're facing defensively, and hey, I have Justin Jefferson, or when you're in L.A., hey, I have Cooper Cup, and I know if I get him into a favorable situation, he can get the job done. So how much are you balancing the talent on your roster versus maybe plays that you like in the playbook? Yeah, I think it all comes back to your offensive philosophy and what you truly want to be from your core at that foundation um, you know, what are the principles uh, that, that carry true week in and week out? And then, um, you know, you apply the, the, the players that you have, the personnel that you have um, to be multiple, but yet feature, uh, you know, the best guys that you have in, in those critical moments and uh, trusting them to win matchups within man coverage, zone coverage, how you run the ball, all those things. Um, but, but I think it is important to have a foundation of, of what you want to be and, and, and explain that, give the players the why behind it. Uh, so you're really not selling much at that point. And then when the game plan thoughts throughout uh, the season come during a 17 game season, um, if you can tie those things into the core of what you are as an offense, uh, obviously you're going to have some outliers from time to time, but if you stay true um, to who you are as an offense and those players can really embrace that, uh, they really know what they're building around every week and they know what they're getting when they show up, uh, you know, on Wednesdays to start a work week. So when you get the job with the Vikings in February, have you found yourself debating ever pulling a Brian Kelly and mixing in a Minnesota accent when you're speaking to the Minnesota people? <laughs> uh, you know what? You'd think that uh, I'd have it figured out by now with being in, in uh, a lot of places over the last 15 years, but uh, you know, I am who I am and, and, and that's, that's who I'm going to be. And I'm sure, uh, 
you know, whether it was growing up in New Jersey, moving to California, and then and then all over the places that I've been as a player or coach, I'm sure if, if you got me saying the right word or two, uh, I could probably figure out a few of those accents. You throw in an ope or you betcha, because I'm from Wisconsin, and I got the northern accent. It still creeps in every now and then, but I've kind of lost it, haven't moved away, but it, it is a unique one. But you came in with also Questia Dofamen, so complete brand new staff there in the front office and and the coaching staff. How has have those conversations gone? Because when you were you know playing in the NFL, he's trading on Wall Street, trading commodities. He comes from a basketball background, playing at Princeton, a completely different, two different kind of worlds, or two different viewpoints of how you attack the game of football. How have those conversations gone trying to find common ground and how to best win a Super Bowl? Yeah, it's been one of the coolest parts of this job. Uh, you know, I had had a relationship with him, you know, uh, having spent some time in San Francisco for that one year when he was obviously there, you know, working for the Niners as well. We were both, you know, young. I was, you know, really in my second year. Um, he had kind of uh, recently transitioned into being on the football side, uh, but we still established, you know, you know, a chemistry and a friendship there uh, that really picked up from day one, um, from the first day I stepped foot. Uh, here at our facility and, and and even throughout the interview process, you could feel it. And it's just been confirmed. He's an unbelievable person, um, incredibly intelligent, great communicator. Um, the collaboration uh, that that exists in our building uh, between obviously the personnel staff and 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 our coaching staff um, and and really everybody who gets in around our players, um, I think if if you had each and every one of them on, they would all say the same thing that it's real. Um, it's not a cliche. It's something that matters on a daily basis and, and feel and people feel like we're building something on a foundation uh, that can hopefully sustain because of that. And I give him so much credit for that. There's uh, I've said this before, but there's there's really no one else in this league. I would rather be uh, paired up with, um, you know, on a day to day basis, building the football team together uh, than Kwesi. And, and, and that continues to be confirmed each and every day I come to the office. So what was going through your mind then on draft day when you're sitting there with Jamison Williams on the board, Kyle Hamilton on the board, and Questy's like, you know, we're going to trade back. When the Jimmy Johnson old school trade value chart says, maybe you're getting a little fleeced on this trade. But the new school analytics, what we would say here at PFF was you guys are winning this trade in terms of value added. So what's going through your mind there when you guys make that trade? Yeah, I think uh, we, you know, we had a plan. And uh, I think uh, our draft, when, when, when that last pick went in, um, to, to complete the, the 2022 NFL draft. I think, uh, you know, a lot of that plan came to fruition of how we wanted to build our team, the type of players at certain positions we wanted to go get. And I think uh, Kwesi deserves so much, uh, you know, credit for navigating um, th those scenarios. And the only thing I would just add is, um, you know, I, I wouldn't go challenging uh, a former Wall Street guy on any uh, trade charts and values anytime <laughs> soon. It, it would not be in, in anyone's best interest. But uh, um, like I said before, nobody I'd rather be doing this with. And the fact that, uh, you know, every time we're in a room together, I know I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but yet uh, he never makes me feel like that. Uh, that's a hell of a quality to have in a guy working side by side with you every day. So the Vikings obviously bought into analytics from – you know, trade value charts, maybe team building perspective. But what about what can we expect from a play calling standpoint? Because Sean McVay was notoriously a little conservative on fourth downs in terms of go for it decisions. What can we expect from you in those same situa situations? Yeah, I think every situation is it, its own. And I think, uh, you know, analytics can be an unbelievable tool uh, to help in that decision making process. But at the same time, 
Um, a lot of it goes into um, some of those things that are that are hard to to put into the data the data sets and and to help spit out the right and wrong answer sometimes. Um, it's if it was that easy, I think uh, you know it, it would be uh, pretty much cut and dry. Everybody would be doing the same thing. Uh, but I do think philosophy comes into play. How you're trying to win the game, how you've talked to your team uh, about how we need to win this football game. So when uh, that fourth and uh, fourth down decision happens, or uh, a decision to be aggressive, or or maybe not so aggressive in a two minute end of half or end of game situation. Um, there's very little gray area that exists between, uh, you know, the plays and the philosophy uh, that ultimately you're, you're, you're having your players. Once those 11 guys step on the field, uh, you know, it's about those guys and their comfort and not only what you're trying to do situationally, uh, but schematically as well. But I, I think we'll treat uh, each and every situation as its own. Uh, we'll obviously have a ton of dialogue as a staff. I've got some great uh, situational uh, you know, help on the staff and, and a guy like Ryan Cordell, who's done that at different spots. And then a former head coach in Mike Pettin, um, Ed Donatel's got a ton of experience, uh, as do a lot of the coaches on our staff. So I'll rely on those guys. But in the end, um, you know, I'll make the decision, whatever that is, uh, that I think is in the best interest of our team to win that particular game. And so you are going to have help in terms of analytics, some guy in the booth giving you the numbers and what the data says at any given time during fourth down decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love it. Love it. All right. Let's get to your background a little bit because uh, unique background, obviously. Your father was an FBI agent. I, I know when I watch like football movies that I can tell when it's, you know, not adding up that it just it's not how it actually works in real life. Is that the same for you when you watch crime movies? You're like, this is not how the FBI works. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's one of those things where you'd be surprised which ones he actually says are real and which ones aren't. You know, I'm always surprised to get that answer myself. But uh, but no, he's uh, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to, you know, I've had a dad that, that had that kind of that kind of job, that kind of commitment to his job while also still being a great dad and being around as much as he was uh, when when he was around and the impact he had on me. So, um, you know, he's one of those he's one of those people that I absolutely look up to for a lot of different reasons. Um, but, uh, as far as those crime movies, um, I definitely, uh, I definitely, uh, you know, never miss out on a chance to be like, you know, that's, that's gotta be BS or, you know, is that real? And, and, uh, like I said, you'd be surprised at the answer sometimes. I love it. I love it. So I know you went to broadcasting briefly, but did you ever think about going into acting? Cause I feel like you got the look, I feel like you could have done it. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about acting, but, uh. I think uh, I my broadcasting career was short for a reason, and when uh, Mike Pettin called me and offered me an opportunity to coach football, it was uh, what I thought I was, uh, you know, kind of meant to do. And then it was like you said, then it was just about figuring out if my wife was going to allow me to do it or, or not, <laughs> and uh, were you would you be willing to kind of you know get on that ride to to a lot of different cities, a lot of different places, raising our family, you know, in a lot of great places, and. Um, so uh, the journey, I, I, I can't say I, I predicted it or could say that I'd be sitting here talking to you as the head coach of the Minnesota Vikings, but I, I'm very thankful for the one, for the path that I've been on and, and all the, uh, you know, the wonderful, wonderful people along the way. So you, you were in broadcast, you were on the, the San Diego state broadcast team for a little bit of sideline reporter. Did it give you a little newfound respect for the media side or, or are you like, these guys got it made. This is easy. This is cakewalk. This is, these guys don't. It's not as hard a job as they make it out to be. No, it absolutely did, and and it it is a it was a good lesson for me because I understand, 
you know, the media has a job to do and, and, and it's not always easy as a coach or a player to, to help make that job easier. But when we can, um, I think it's a great opportunity to help ultimately the most important thing, which is connect with our fans. And I, and I think you guys do a great job of educating our fans, um, but also, you know, helping connect us on a daily basis to those great fans that we have, especially here in Minnesota. So, uh, you know, I, I absolutely, you know, remember those days and remember some of the lessons I learned and the hard lessons of, you know, when a coach just wouldn't answer a question that I kept on asking um, and, and what that made uh, uh, my job like as, you know, like <laughs> I said, in my illustrious two-year broadcasting career. I will tell you right now, though, some people do make it look a little harder than it actually is. There are some people who make it look difficult. But last question here, it's a question I ask everyone on this because this is a podcast about football and the game that unites us all. You're 6'5", 225 pounds. That's like ideal size for any sport. Why did you fall in love with the game of football over pretty much anything else you could have been doing in the world? Well, I actually, my first love was basketball. Um, and I, I absolutely loved it. I, I still try to play when I can. Uh, the, my body doesn't always cooperate these days. But um, I think that size, you know, you know it, it equates to having the opportunity to play quarterback or maybe another position in this great game. Um, and I remember a couple times at San Diego State getting to actually get out and run and play a little bit with the basketball team um, and feeling very, very small. You know, <laughs> I became a, a stand up, you know, three point shooter, stay out of the key. You know, don't uh, don't go down there with with those big fellows. And I realized I was playing the right sport all along. I love it. I love it. Thanks so much for the time, coach. Really appreciate it. And good luck to you this season. Appreciate it, Mike. Thanks, man. Ooh, Kevin O'Connell. I did not expect him to say that basketball was his passion <laughs> at the end there. Like, I, that one, and I can relate, like probably growing up, obviously because I didn't play football in high school, like I loved playing basketball. Obviously, I loved playing football when I did, like in seventh grade. But basketball was great. I did not expect him to be, you know, all the way into college still being like, yeah, I fucking loved basketball. That was interesting. So, um, Definitely relatable, though, from me. But now on to the movie club. If you're not part of the Talking Ball movie club, if you didn't watch American Underdog this the last two weeks, that you're missing out, guys. You're missing out on some cinematic um, genius. Honestly, it was like Airbud, but with an actual human. It was, it was pretty... <laughs> it was a tough slog. I watched the first half with Austin Gale. He could not make it past the first half. He ducked out. He's a movie snob in his own right, but even me, uh, it was tough. You knew it was going to be bad. So I'm going to give you a little like movie report, like a book report here. You knew it was going to be bad. Well, in the very first scene, it's a practice scene from him at Northern Iowa. No, not a practice scene, a game scene. And the announcer over the loudspeaker says, in comes Kurt Warner. Remember, he was highly recruited and sat on the bench for four years. Like really hitting you over the head with, Something that just a, a guy of the loudspeaker would never say in the middle of a game. And it's blaringly obvious that he's trying to play a college student. Zachary Levi, the main character, plays Kurt Warner. He's 41 years old at the time of shooting. Like, it looks he utterly looks at, absurd. He looks it, too. Like, there's a lot of people <laughs> yeah. that will, like, play high school students. Like, the, the euphoria people, like, they're yeah. not high schools. They're way older than that. But, like, they but this one can looks... pass Zach Levi. And I, that's not even a knock. Like, yeah. you know, 40's not old, old. But he looks like he's 41 years old. I look like more of a college student than him. I don't look nothing like a college student. And then who he's dating, Brenda, who ends up dating, 
40, Anna Paquin, 40 years old. And now she is older than him in real life, like five years older. Um, and Kurt Warner was being a big simp in the movie. He shows up at her house unannounced and plays with his her son, um, which is absurd. After they had just yeah, met I at the bar. I would not recommend that. After they had just met at the bar. <laughs> that weekend, they had just met at the bar. That's what he does. Uh, it was pretty absurd. And then when they first make out, he says, how does it feel to make out with a future professional athlete? So that part of the movie, if like I can't believe Kurt Warner signed off on that, which makes me a little afraid that maybe he said that in real life at some point. But... They kind of did him dirty. Do we know if he signed off on that? Like, because I know, like, well, he was um, pushing it out. He was pumping. Okay, it. he was then, really then, promoting then he it. Because I know, like, I think the Blind Side with Michael Orr, like, he watched that and apparently was like, "Hey, yeah, like, yeah. I'm not down with this." So, like, sometimes guys, I mm -hmm. maybe don't get consulted as much as they should. But I, I, so I guess if Kurt Warner's pushing it, then yeah, I guess he probably did sign off on. Yeah. It. So, so he goes from Northern Iowa, uh, gets a tryout with the Green Bay Packers, and they show Lambeau Field, and it's like Lambeau Field yesterday. It is. They don't even try to make it look like Lambeau Field in the '90s when it was looked like a green trash can with the corrugated metal on the outside and the yellow stripes. It's like no, it's the brick modern version, uh, which probably made me more mad than anyone else watching it. But he goes to the Packers. That the, like they sign him to a tryout that day, gets put in, gets asked to go in by Steve Mariucci, and refuses to enter practice because he doesn't know the playbook, like. They, they did Kurt Warner dirty or else he's the dumbest human being alive and refused to actually go in and try to play football. And that's why they cut him. So he ends up going and working at a Hy-Vee, boxing or, you know, uh, sh shelving, putting, I can't fucking talk right now, putting things on the shelves. What's that called? Why am I blanking on what that's called? Uh, stocking stock shelves. Stockroom, yeah. Stocking shelves. My God, that one was tough to get out. Stocking shelves at a Hy-Vee. They have this cool scene where he throws a Wheaties box that he's staring at to his coworker, and it looks like he's, you know, winning the Super Bowl. Uh, very tropey stuff. Pretty ridiculous. And, and then he's approached to play in the Arena Football League, and he gets pissed off about it. He's like, no, I play real football. As he's stocking shelves at High V, actually not playing real football at all. He's like mad. And that for some reason, Quinn, if you have this picture, he decides that he's going to play in the Arena Football League at a diner with like four hamburgers on his plate. And they don't even, they don't explain why he has four hamburgers on his plate. You got to bulk up. <laughs> it looks he made his decision right then and there. He just didn't tell him that. And if you were sharp, you could be like, oh, that guy's eating a lot. Like he's trying to make sure that he's sturdy enough to withstand the yeah. rigors of a I mean, arena football league season. That's when he decides. And the arena football scenes are like straight out of NFL blitz. I'm surprised they didn't have someone leading with like their feet coming in to make a tackle, like kicking them in the head. It, it was... Pretty ridiculous. But the thing I hated about the movie the most, probably, is that they like, there's no improvement arc for Kurt Warner. It's just he plays well based off of like how in love he's feeling with Brenda at any given point in time. Like he starts the arena league and he looks like he's never played football in his life initially. And then he gets like a pep talk. Um, Brenda breaks up with him and he wins the, or gets to the arena football league finals and they have. In the arena football finals, he loses with a dead ringer for the play that he then wins the Super Bowl on if they weren't trying to lay it on too thick for you. But Brenda breaks up with them. That all happens in the arena football league. And then they get back together because Brenda's parents die in a tornado. They have no other interaction about why they get back together other than just that her parents died. 
And she says to him at the funeral, she's like, you better not be here. I'm going to remember this the rest of my life. And he says, I know. And they get back together right there. That was, it was pretty electric. Um, the other, the other things I had, uh, Mike Martz, they did him very dirty in this. He looks like an absolute sociopath in his, in, in, in all the lines that he has. At one point, this is a direct quote. He says to Kurt Warner, tell me why a team worth $800 million with one of the most complex offenses ever built by me should put you in the driver's seat. Um, and then after the very first drive that Kurt Warner plays for the Rams, he calls him on the phone and says, just kidding. I did all that just to test you. That that was cool. Do you think like, <laughs> do you think, I guess like you could probably go back in like some old NFL films, but like there's no way uh, that quarterbacks and offensive coordinators are having conversations like that on the, on no. the horn, right? Like no. it's just like, what'd you see on this play? Okay, right? gotta go. I gotta dial up the next drive. That's what it is. He's yeah. over the phone after the first drive calling up the box and Mike Martz is like, I always believed in you. I just had to, you just had to make you prove it to me or something. And oh my God. It was tough. And, and then the, th the other thing that pissed me off is they kept calling him a rookie in the movie. He, he, it was his second year with the Rams that he won the Super Bowl. Like, they go through the whole season, and they keep saying it's his rookie year. Why do we have to lie about that? It's still, it's still an insane story if it's his second year. We don't have to keep calling him a rookie. Um, I didn't like it on the whole. It honestly should have just been a documentary. It's an awesome story. Like, like, it truly is. Like, I didn't know a lot of the stuff going uh, into the movie that they showed in the movie and I was looking it up and it is you know vast majority was true except for him being a rookie but it's a crazy story the whole thing like he's he because I remember Kurt Warner pimping it like before it came mm -hmm. out he he's like I want this to be like inspirational and it is yeah it's just it's kind of cheesy it just should it, it just really it, they didn't go about it and maybe the best yeah. way but it is inspirational it just should have been documentary and the, the thing other thing okay last thing that made me upset that the, the the Dick Vermeil quote, the like all-time Dick Vermeil quote where he says, we will rally around Kurt Warner. The year they end up winning the Super Bowl, we'll rally around Kurt Warner and we'll play good football. They misquote it. He says, we will play good football in the movie instead of we'll. Maybe I'm a little more upset about that than I should, but it's like an all-time quote. It's one of the best quotes in NFL history. A guy saying that about a completely unproven quarterback to then win the Super Bowl, having that quote, and he was like getting emotional as he said it. To butcher that quote was just a very, very on brand for this movie. Well, a lot of the historical stuff is like inaccurate. Like the scene where he's like sitting in the, uh, like in the back of the grocery store, wherever they're at, and he's like watching film and his friend comes in and he's like, hey, let's go. And he's like, no, I can't. I got work to do. And he's like, they'll never draft anybody out of northern Iowa. <laughs> and like I looked it up. He signed in 1994. Before that, nine players out of northern Iowa had been drafted, <laughs> including – a guy named Kenny Shedd, who was a wide receiver that the Jets took in the fifth round in 93, the year before. The year. So, like, if you were watching happened. tape on him, yeah. Like, you he had to have seen, you know, I'm not saying that you're going to draft his quarterback, but like, you at least saw him and was like, oh, this guy might actually be pretty good. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that I had, like, the guy that played uh, Marshall Falk. Oh, yeah. His name is O.J. Simpson. O.J. O.J. Keith Simpson. Which, like, that, like... How do you agree to that role? As a it, I mean, like, I get him, but how do you hire a guy as, you know, a movie producer whose name's O.J. Simpson to play a running for, for a running... For any role, really. It's yeah. like, yeah, dude, like, I can't hire... But if you look him up, like, if you look up O.J., mm -hmm. like, that actor, he really, like, apparently is hammering home, like, the O.J. Keith Simpson, yeah. which... 
You should. Yeah, you need to. You, you need to it. differentiate. His, and he was named after O.J. Simpson. Like His dad was a huge USC fan. I looked this whole thing up. He was, very unfortunately, um, yeah, named after a, a... Also, the guy that plays player. Isaac Bruce, Simeon Castile, former Bengal. Oh, nice. 2008. Yep. Corner Bruce back. was nails. I, you, I had actually forgotten about Bruce's go-ahead touchdown in that game. Because everyone thinks of the last play, Dyson at the goal line. But Bruce had the goal ahead score uh, on a pretty sick, like a deep, it was like 70 yards something. Um, all right, PVOOs. That's oh, okay. Next next movie, though, for the movie club, two weeks after week two, post week two, we're going to watch Prescient One because of all the shit they put on the helmets this preseason. Concussion. Will Smith getting deep into the movie vault here. We're, go- we're not watching a lot of good movies, I'll just say. Um, that's the beauty of the talking ball movie club. I watched like a snippet. It was on TV not too long. It wasn't. Yeah. It was better than American Underdog. I, I do, or at least the part I saw. So. Yeah, no one talks about concussions anymore, man. It's because then there was like a study that came out saying that like it was so highly correlated to playing youth football. Which, duh, <laughs> like taking hits at six years old probably not the greatest for you. So, uh, glad that that's not like a huge talking point. A little bit of a bummer to always talk about, like we did like six years ago. All right. Speaking of not bummers, PVOOs, positive vibes only online. Some of the best slash worst takes I saw from the week that was. And this one, I have to start off with this. Desmond Howard and his playoff predictions for college football. And I just, he has Texas A&M 1, Baylor 2, Michigan 3, Pitt 4. Not a single team with better odds than plus 2,000 right now to make to win the national championship. It just, I see, I can't do this. You know, some people are capable of that, just completely dishonest, drop a headline. People are going to see this. Those fan bases are going to feel good. So it takes, I can't, I can't do that. I can't. And, and this just completely ignores how the college football landscape works. You know, the, the, Bama, Georgia, or Ohio state. One of, one of, if not all three of those are going to be in the playoff. There's just not a scenario where all three aren't. That just that's utterly absurd. I, I can't do that. I Des, more power to you if you make a living that way. I'm not gonna hate on how everyone makes a living, but I just, I can't do that. I can't do that. All right. Next up is Mike Golick Jr. And it pains me to do this to a fellow domer, but I have to call a bias when I see it. And he said this. He tweeted this Saturday night after Notre Dame lost. If you're an ND fan chirping Tommy Reese night now, I don't need the film to know you're a freaking loser. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Dorks. Few things here. Few things to pick through. Maybe he was hammered, tweeted it out. I've done that. I- I've had a lot of takes that I regret in that case. Um, but I don't think this is one. Like, this doesn't necessarily qualify for that because this is. This to me is bias. Like this is, he is too close to the situation and cannot see the tree through the leaves. He, he is too close to Tommy Reese. Obviously Mike Golick, you know, played on the same teams as Tommy Reese, friend of his to objectively evaluate situation, which was he allowed, he, he's often scored seven points the last two games, bowl game last year, seven points in the second half of the last two games, bowl game last year, Ohio State game week one, and just crawled into a ball. A shell the entire second half of those two games that that's worthy of criticism i'm not going to police how fans i'm not going to 
tell fans not to criticize war- with warranted criticism. Now, I never cross the line with, you know, your threats and what your, your threats, your criticism and like how you're approaching it. Never be nasty or disrespectful or like threatening. Did not use mean to use the word threat in the first place. Do not be threatening when making it. But simply pointing out that the offense wasn't good and he's the play caller and the play calling had some issues Saturday night is very fair. It's very fair. And I know I get accused of bias when it comes to Notre Dame and Green Bay, which is what I alluded to off the top. But that truly is only when it comes to picks, like picking those teams. I will objectively evaluate the roster, tell you their strengths and weaknesses, tell you that the Packers have the worst receiving core in the NFL. And then I'll just be like, eh, they're probably going to win the Super Bowl still too. Just because I, that, that's how I, my fandom pours through. But in terms of evaluating, you know, coaching staff, the players, I feel like I'm not biased in that regard. Now, picking them, eh, it, sne- it sneaks in. Why not? Why? There's, there's no downside. Very little. All right. Next one up on this list. I'll I don't know who's running PFF College, but they're getting a little too frisky. This this was fantastic. This tweet was personally. insane. PFF College tweeted out about KJ Jefferson, the Arkansas Razorbacks quarterback. KJ Jefferson, with the graphic of his yardage, said KJ Jefferson got that hog in him. KJ Jefferson played well. He did have that hog in him. That was got that hog in him. I still haven't figured I've tweeted that. I need to get on the case. That was just, I like was, that was, saw that Sunday and I just stopped dead in my tracks. I'm like, I, I didn't, I don't have to go any deeper into it. You guys all, you guys all understand what's going on there. It was a little too frisky. Although apparently, I guess Lee Corso had said earlier in the day, something about he's got the hog in him or something. I don't know if he was quoting that, but we can't be making plays like that. That's just going to alienate its fans. <laughs> going to alienate maybe KJ Jefferson. Uh, all right, next one up, Howard Eskin, who is on radio in Philadelphia, uh, Sports Radio 94 WIP. This one, this tweet's an all-time Hall of Fame caliber tweet. He tweets out, Jason Peters has done it again. He's stealing money, but it's great that the Cowboys are ones taken this time. Passing along the thoughts with handcuffs when Jerry Jones realized Peters has taken another team. Sad for a future Hall of Famer. One, Peters has taken nobody. He's made like very little money the last two seasons for how well he's played at offense tackle. He's taken like one year, $1.5 million deals comparatively to how well he's played. 77.9 pass blocking grade last year. Very well. It's still at age 39. He'll be 40 this year, yes, but probably still better than about half the left tackles in the NFL in terms of pass protection. And then to tweet that out, with a picture of Jason Peters, and then also a picture of handcuffs, in case we didn't get what Eskin was trying to get at there. is we didn't understand that I actually, I, I, I honestly still don't understand what he was getting at with the handcuffs. <laughs> He's stealing? Who's, who's the one that should be put in handcuffs? Peters? That just doesn't make sense, dude. I... I I really hate that tweet. I really don't know what to say. It makes it's wrong on so many levels. That's sports talk radio though for you. Uh, Howard Eskin. That that was awful. All right, last one here. 
um, from Eric Moody, ESPN fantasy analyst. Um, and this one's been, this one you can replace with like 10 different names because it happens every year. And he tweeted out, Wandale Robinson has the potential to become the New York Giants version of Tyreek Hill. And some of you don't even care. There's one Tyreek Hill. All right. The closest one to Tyreek Hill plays with Tyreek Hill. And it's Jalen Waddle. But we do this every year. Someone's like, reminds me of Tyreek Hill. Rondale Moore reminds me of Tyreek Hill. Short fast. Short fast is not what it takes to be Tyreek Hill. You have to be faster than everyone. <laughs> That's what it takes to be Tyreek Hill. And you have to be quicker than everyone too. And you have to attack the ball like a fucking animal down the football field. You got those three things. We can talk about you being Tyreek Hill. You got that dog in you? We can talk about you being Tyreek Hill. What about that hog in you? Got that hog in you? We can talk about being KJ Jefferson. But Wandale Robinson is ran a 4-4-1. He's not the fast wide receiver on the Giants. Um, faster than Kenny Galladay, though. But that, that's just, we got to stop. We have to stop. And, and the thing is, like, I think this was actually sent to me by, I believe, a talking ball listener. I think this is how general managers kind of think, though, right? Like everyone's kind of chasing that is why these guys are getting drafted highly. That they're like, ooh, you know, like he could be Tyreek Hill-esque ish in our offense. It's like, no, that, that's just that's why a lot of these guys haven't turned out. Um you also don't have to have that particular skill set, though, right? Like, it is nice if you have somebody that yeah. can run like that. But again, to your point, like, he is like one of one. And yeah. you could just also just draft a really good receiver. Yeah. And you, you know? could, like, like a Wandale, T. Higgins that just, yes. he just gets open and just makes plays and is going to get you like 1,200 yards. Wandale could be prime Cole Beasley. And that's a great pick. But we don't have to be dishonest about the skill set they bring to the table. And I like the, uh, he went with the Ian Hart. It seems like none of you care. That's something you don't even care. That one's always, it's a good engagement play. I respect that. But factually specious, to say the least. All right, we're going to grade some takes. You guys came with some heat in the speak pipe. So we've got three takes on deck. Uh, Quinn, start breaks off. Which, uh, which one are we going to first? Uh, we'll go with Titans 420. Okay. So on the PFF NFL podcast with Steve Palazzolo, Mike, you said that due to a lack of preseason productivity, Traylon Burks is not ready to produce come week one of the NFL. And I think you're wrong. So the Titans utilize this draft hack. They draft bigger players that underperform at the combine because they know that whenever the pads come on and that extra weight comes on, bigger guys have an easier time maneuvering in the pads. That's why on tape, Traylon Burks looks like he runs a 4-3 when he's really not quite as fast without pads on. Compared to a little dude with pads on, Traylon Burks is a specimen. Same as A.J. Brown in the second round, Derrick Henry in the second round, Titans hack. Tighten up. Okay. Um, I, I guess I don't think that's crazy, the drafting bigger players from their draft sort of history. They definitely haven't drafted a lot of small guys like on the smaller end for their respective positions. Caleb Farley, very big cornerback. You know, Jeffrey Simmons, well-sized, 310, 315-pound DT. Isaiah Wilson, obviously a massive, probably only getting bigger offensive tackle. 
Uh, Traylon Burks, obviously large. Rashawn Evans on the larger side for a linebacker. Harold Landry, that's probably not the case for your second round pick back in 2018. Corey Davis, a bigger receiver. Dory Jackson, eh, not really, kind of on the smaller side. Like I, I'm not sure there's enough evidence there. Christian Fulton, the second rounder, he was just under six foot, nearly 200 pounds, probably solidly built for a cornerback. I wouldn't call him big, you know, not like Caleb Farley is. So I'm not sure there's enough evidence there to really go to bat for that theory is like that's all they draft they definitely have a haven't gone towards a lot of guys who are undersized for their respective positions but that's kind of you know not a lot of undersized get drafted in the first second round that's kind of just why uh the undersized moniker is what it is like people don't like taking chances on uh physical outliers at respective positions so my point was more that he wasn't ready based off of what we saw from college and based off of than what we saw from him in the preseason based off of like the depth chart. So I grade this taking the low 60s. We could give it a 62.3. It, it's just, there is something there to the drafting bigger guys, but that doesn't really have anything to do with Traylon Burks and how ready he is as a rookie. If it did, he would have looked better in the preseason. He would have looked better in training camp. He would be starting over Kyle Phillips. But with none of those things being true, it's going to come in with a low grade for me. All right, who's up next? Let's speak. 62.3 is actually above average. In the is PFF that? System. It, I thought 60 was average. I've lost track wrong? of the PFF grading system. I thought I was in okay. like the high well, we 60s. we should probably know right, that. I'll bump it down. We're going 58.3 then. All right, deal. Uh, we'll go with Vish. Hey, Mike, what's up? This is Vishnu. Great this take. The discourse on the Bengals and the Bills this offseason is the height of a double standard. Everyone is quick to write off the Bengals' run last season. It's fluky when they had arguably the best performing quarterback, best receiving core, and they accomplished this behind a dog shit offensive line that has been markedly improved at almost every position. Not to mention, they've invested draft capital in strengthening the depth of what was already a very good secondary. It seems that many people hold regular season losses to the Jets and the Browns against them. Meanwhile, we forget that this Bills team lost to the Jags, lost to a Patriots team that threw the ball twice in a game, and their secondary got torched in the divisional round. Plus, their offensive line still remains garbage this year. Are we overly dismissive of the Bengals running it back in the AFC? And no, Quinn did not pay me to say this. I like, didn't. I like the take. I do think the the Bills coronation, as I said off the top, a touch premature. You know, for a team that you know, didn't even make the AFC Championship game, and no, that's 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 no, that's disingenuous. My part to even argue that they had as good a chance as any as the Chiefs did in that game. Um, but I do think they weren't. Like, more they weren't world beaters last year. This was not, as he said, they lost the Jaguars. This was not an infallible roster. And in actuality, they had guys like have some career years, play above their probably pay grade that maybe could take a step back. You know, Travis White obviously wasn't there for the playoffs, but he's no sure thing to come back from an ACL just being the Travis White we knew of old. You got a rookie starting at the other cornerback position. You got a great safety duo coming off a great year where they both tied for the league league in picks, but they're both in their 30s at this point on the downsides of their career. And the one spot I worry is the offensive line. Offensive line is, on paper at least, not much better than it was a year ago. Like maybe Spencer Brown going into year two, you can expect an upgrade. Roger Saffold at like damn near 35 at this point. I don't think you can expect him to come in and play quality football. Yeah, you're banking on Gabe Davis improvement in year three. James Cook being improvement as a runner. Von Miller adding to that pass rush. But they had Jerry Hughes last year who was still getting the job done. So I'm not sure that's a huge, huge upgrade. If you just said on paper, what team to me upgraded more over the course of the offseason, 
I'd probably lean the Bengals. That offensive line upgrade is fucking massive. Four guys, four upgrades, more likely than not, depending on how Cordell Volson plays. But if you beat out Jack Harmon, who was starting last year, then you would probably call that an upgrade. So four upgrades in the offensive line. Were the Bills probably a better team last year? Yeah, they were. But I do think the Bengals probably got better in you know, team-building purposes. So I'll give that take. I'll give a high 70s. 78.6. 78.6 That's a high, that's a good that's a good take. We got one more. Highest grade so far. Uh this last one is from Bernie. Hey Mike, uh, it's Bernie here. I think the Niners, uh Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch should potentially be on the hot seat this season if Justin Fields outplays Trey Lance uh over the course of the season and we'll get a good look at both of them as they play each other in week 1. Uh I think in the pre-draft in the pre-draft process, uh everyone was super high on Justin Fields. Everyone had him as consensus QB2. Some people, some smart people like JTO Sullivan even had him as QB1. Um, obviously, had the physical tools, all the physical tools that Trey Lance has, but then also uh, played at a higher level of competition, uh, obviously played more games and had better collegiate production. Um, but it seems like when the Niners made that selection, no one really kind of questioned it. One, because everyone loves Kyle Shanahan, and two, because of the perceived higher ceiling of Trey Lance, um, probably just because of his physical tools. But in reality, I'm just wondering if we should have questioned that more because Justin Fields has those same physical tools and, like I said, uh, obviously have the collegiate production. Um, and I'm kind of thinking that that leads to a higher ceiling than, the, than Trey Lance's perceived ceiling. So I'm just wondering what you think about that and uh, if they should be on the hot seat. I don't think he should be on the hot seat. I, I do think it was worth criticizing. There were a lot of people that did criticize it at the time. And, and I think the bigger thing worth criticizing is just the sheer amount they gave up for the uncertainty of a guy who's going to be QB3 in a class. Now, I get it was a very good quarterback class, but one, the NFL's really struggled to identify quarterback talent. So to be that, feel that good about who you know is going to be there at three, that he is going to be the guy, and that I'm going to mortgage my entire future because if that guy doesn't, you know, with the move they made, if he didn't work, if Lance doesn't work out, they're going to be very hamstrung from a team-building perspective. So I, I don't think as much who they drafted is the sort of criticizable part there. It's what they mortgaged just to draft that guy when, as it stands right now, they could have drafted Mac Jones, who looks already better than Jimmy Garoppolo. And, you know, TBD, how his career will play out versus Trey Lance. But looks like a guy who, you know, could have given you Jimmy Garoppolo's production for not the Jimmy Garoppolo cost. So I think that's what's worth criticizing is that giving up that much Talent evaluation perspective, I don't think there's a lot of people who are super low on Lance. Everyone just agreed. It's a fucking wild card. You know, fewer than 400 career dropbacks in college football. FCS. Never played, you know, in the FBS and in a run-heavy offense. So I think that's worth criticizing is that they made the play in the first place. Talent evaluation, I don't think so. But John Lynch has earned, as far as draft track record goes, he, he's got a good one. You know, he's drafted a lot of good players over the years, whether it's George Kittle in the fifth round, whether it's Fred Warner in the third round, Debo Samuel in the second. He's earned the right to not be put on the hot seat just because of one bad move, in my opinion. So go a little lower. I I think you're onto something, Bernie, but I can't go all the way. So I'm going to go right middle, 68.4. I think that's right about where average is. PFF grades. All right, there you, there you speak pipes. We had some other ones. We had one that came in, compared me in Austin. I'm not going to run that on the show, guys. Come on. 
Can't be, can't be doing that. Last segment here. Would you rather? We're moving power rankings to Monday because we had such a jam-packed show today. But would you rather, again, player? Would you rather a unit? Or would you rather a random? Wow, well, almost went back to my list days there. Um, Quinn, I'll, I'll pose mine to you first. Player. Tom Brady in three years or Matt Ryan in three years? Who are you more likely to want as your quarterback? I, I mean, I think this is pretty easy. I, th- I think I'm banking on Tom Brady just really defying. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I, he maybe takes another hiatus from training camp and goes to uh, Europe and gets that like blood Germany. therapy that uh, yeah. like Kobe and A-Rod and all them had. Dude, I bet that you feels know? sick, that stuff. I bet oh, you feel yeah. amazing. Oh, yeah. That. But I just I, I don't know like I, I all in all seriousness like I I mean I know he's good he'd be what forty eight yeah so he'd be forty eight like, Matt, Matt Ryan be forty Matt, like Tom so Tom Brady is still I mean you can make an argument that he's still the best quarterback in the NFL I mean I, I'm not saying that but he's like top five I think almost unanimously everybody would agree yeah and I mean, Matt he's got Ryan, a stronger arm than Matt Ryan that's right what I'm saying like Matt Ryan a lot of people were saying like he's cooked. Mm-hmm. regardless of what happens this year people are saying he's cooked and tom brady's still playing at a high level so i'm just if for nothing else based on that i mean i know that number like 48 is unprecedented but like at least you're seeing it you yeah, know because because matt ryan's arm like i think he'll be decent with the colts mm-hmm. but he like his arm is cooked he's gonna have to yeah. do it in a different way yeah you know fuck i think you talked me into brady too damn plus it's just hard to doubt Tom Brady. Yeah, I think you're talking about Brady. Because Matt Ryan is kind of the normal aging curve, right? Or at least has looked like it. He's 37. The amount of guys that were doing it at 37, 20 years ago was very low. It was a rarity for a guy to be playing that well that late in their career. So Yeah, and 37 now is like expected. Yeah. Right? If you're like a franchise quarterback that signs like one of these huge deals, if you're not still balling at 37, like you fucked up. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. You got you got one? Yeah. So you just mentioned Austin and you just mentioned two QBs. Uh the ringer dropped their like QB list the other day. Did you see that? Oh, I did Steven? not. Uh so it was like Steven Ruiz and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of other guys. I'm sure Austin had a hand in it. You just ask him about it when you get home. Um but anyway, they had uh so everybody loves to compare Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert, right? Because they had that they're, they're in the same draft class, but they had I think Justin Herbert ranked three and josh allen ranked five and they're they're, of all the you know kind of like physically you know freakish quarterbacks they're the two that i at least in my opinion are like the most similar right in terms of like size house or arm ability to run three and five who would you rather josh allen or justin herbert i like that because i haven't really heard that debate before but it seems like you know it's being similar as players like that debate should happen more. Josh Allen is a much better runner, in my opinion. Not to say that Justin Herbert can't run, but Josh Allen can make guys miss and shrug off defenders at a far higher rate than Herbert. Like Herbert, you give him a lane and he can go, but Allen can like create. So give the edge to Allen in that regard. I mean, the fact that Herbert's been so good, so young though, you know, he's going into the year that year three. Josh Allen going into year three, we weren't even. Yeah, we, that was we, when we that laughing. was when he made the leap. And you know? I mean, you can argue that Herbert already made the or just yeah. shit didn't even have to make a leap. Like, yeah, he was just there. So I don't think it's crazy, honestly. Like I, I think I was. I don't want to shit on the Bills too much. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's a tie. I, I wouldn't rather pick any of them. 
I don't want to choose. I'll, no, I'd go Herbert. Just at the age factor. I mean, like doing it that young, where can the ceiling go? Shit, I don't know. We'll see. But excited to see. All right, unit. And this one's more than just a unit. We're doing whole rosters here. Two teams traded away their franchise quarterbacks from the past decade, decade plus this offseason. Falcons or Seahawks, which roster would you rather have at this very moment? Yeah, so like on some of these questions and voicemails when I've been quiet back here, it's because I've been looking at the rosters trying to decide because this one's tough. Dude, it is, right? This is this is <laughs> tough. Um, so I'll, I'll just give it like a little breakdown. Yeah, go ahead. In terms of, you know, you're looking at rookie talent, guys on young contracts you can build around. AJ Terrell, corner for the Falcons. You got obviously Drake London, who they just drafted, who's kind of TBD. Cal Pitts, who's, you know, over a thousand yards as a rookie, kind of an elite safety. Seahawks, on the other hand, don't have a lot of, I would say, rookie talent. You know, DK Metcalf just signed his deal. Uh, so he's, you know, on that long term. You got Charles Cross at left tackle. Uh, who TBD how he goes, but then pretty much everyone else, whether it's Jamal Adams, Quandre Diggs, those are second contract guys. Your other ones, even Rashad Penny at this point, second contract guy. So I'm leading Falcons on this one, but it's 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 a debate. Wait, are we talking like today, right now? Yeah. Like if if what if would you I, rather like what would you rather have to to go for? Not like who's gonna win. I'm saying like oh, who would like you rather have moving forward as your team? Yeah. Oh, then then that makes then I I agree with you the Falcons okay. because like you said the first thing I looked at was the pass catchers and the DBs and you already kind of touched on that like Drake London Kyle Pitts maybe Desmond Ritter's good I mean we don't know but like if you if he somehow hits or even if he's decent mm -hmm. like you could build off of that and then yeah I mean they got I know. Casey Hayward's not exactly young, but like he's still probably got a few years in him. Yeah. You go Casey Hayward and AJ Terrell, like that's a decent little core right there. But I mean, if you look at the Seahawks roster, like I mean, if they were playing right now, they'd probably like they're the Seahawks defense is like led by your boy Nick Ballore. Yeah, like, I was gonna not, say if they had Nick Ballore, like, their defense is like solid. If they had Nick right Ballore in a longer term contract, we could talk about going forward, but they don't. Only uh, his contract's up after this year, so we shall see. Yeah, I think I'm leaning Falcons heavy there. All right, what's your next? All right, so this one, I kind of, I'm kind of gaming the system a little bit here because it's unit, right? So rather than positional unit, I'm saying like we talked gambling, a unit, like what mm -hmm. would you rather place a unit on? And I'm going to throw the uh, interception odds up here. So I'm going to say, and this is DraftKings Sportsbook, by the way. Shout out DraftKings Sportsbook. Okay. Uh, Jameis Winston plus 1,300 or Davis Mills plus 1,000 to lead the league in interceptions? Where would you rather place your unit? I'm not placing it in any of them or KJ Jefferson for that matter. But on them, I'd probably rather yeah, go Davis Mills. Um, I think Jameis Winston like got to stay on the theme neutered last year. I, I do. I, I think they really succeeded in reeling him in and taking away that that Jamisness that makes him, you know, a, a multiple-time leader in receptions in the NFL, I believe. Yeah. My only theory there was just like these other, right? Like Zach Wilson's not yeah. going to do it because The one I like in that play. bet is Kenny Pickett. If he ever just Ken sees the field, like yeah. he's way low down those odds. But that's the thing. Like Jameis, I don't think they're going to pull Jameis, right? Yeah, they wouldn't. Oh, actually, you but know what they would because you know who's behind it. Trevor Simeon? No. And oh. Dalton. Oh, Dalton's there now. Yeah. Oof. But like, right, like. Yeah. 
I mean, maybe Trevor Lawrence, he's not going to get pulled, but like I could see Justin Fields getting pulled, right? That's not their mm-hmm. guy. They're not pulling Davis you know? Mills. So they got Kyle yeah, David, like there's no one left b- behind Davis Mills. I do like so, Davis like, Mills. Those are the bat. two guys that like are interception prone yeah. that would like probably just be out there through thick and thin, yeah. right? You have 28 interceptions, like, oh, well, you're, you're starting week 17. <laughs> yeah. Davis. Excited to see how he plays. All right. My last one here. A little random one. Would you rather have the Bengals' current roster as constructed with their contracts or you get the entire first round of next year's draft on rookie contracts that they're going to have signed? The entire first round. Yes. Now, for like, just as a fan purpose going forward, not obviously to win right now or to win next year, just would you rather, which one would you rather have? So this is just rooting interest, right? I'm not like, I can't. Well, like, yeah, which one's going to probably be more successful in the long term in terms of championships, playoff appearances in the next decade, we'll say. Can I trade, guys? Of course. You, you have the whole first okay, round. Okay, then I, yeah, then I'll take the first, like, in no disrespect to my Bengals, but I'll trade, like, two of the quarterbacks or whoever and get an established, right? I'll, no. I'll trade for a Joe, I'll trade Joe Burrow back to me with the first rounders on rookie deals and then just build from there. Yeah, that's easy. But I, I, again, I'm kind of gaming the system here. Yeah. I, I, agree. you know what I'm saying? I do think if I could just trade, if I could just wheel and deal, let's freely, say, okay, let's say you can't trade any of the first rounders. You just have to keep all of them on their rookie deals though. And then you can build the yeah, roster then, around then I, them. Then I'm probably going, ah, oh, shit. I don't know. I need it's a, tough because you can sign free agents. Yeah, I was gonna now say I, sign, I need I need a calculator. I need the rookie wage scale in front of me and a calculator <laughs> and like add that up. So like the top five picks are still kind of they're not cheap, shall we say? Like they're they're not you're not saving a ton. Um, you're probably not going to draft more than a couple QBs. I guess you could draft three QBs if you really wanted to. And, but that's and what that I'm saying. Like if you could trade those guys, you could trade for yeah. a veteran, and then you got a bunch of like good players on rookie deals, and mm-hmm. you, again, like you're kind of. I, cheating, but that would work. I think if you have to keep the rookies, I think you're still having a better chance with that of winning the Super Bowl because then you could sign a lot of veterans still. You, you can fill out a good roster of about seven highly priced free agents to smooth out that roster. You could you could sign the trenches, yeah, probably, which is what you probably would need. Like if you got you know? a if you backed into somehow a 2011 NFL draft or even shit 2020 was insane where you had Penny Sewell, where you had Rashawn Slater, like you already like year two, you already have, you know, one of the best tackle duos in football. Uh, you got a Trevor Lawrence in that draft. Like you have all this talent, Jalen Waddle, Jamar Chase, like you already get one of the best, you know, receiving cores in the NFL. It'd be interesting. It'd be interesting. Um yeah. That's uh that's my last one. You got the last one? Yeah, I do. So this is would you rather. And again, this is I, I just saw this and I thought it would be a cool talking point. So like, I guess I'll phrase it as would you rather. So again, let me backtrack here. DraftKings has a prop. Uh, any player to bet to break the record for most pass yards in the regular season. Would you rather bet yes or would you rather bet no? Again, I just I saw it and I just thought and, and it's less about like the odds more so just like. You know, fifty four seventy seven is the number, and like we have Tom Brady projected for like fifty three hundred yards. Yeah, and there's like realistically like five or six guys that could like with a seventeen game season now and the offenses that they're in, like there is a pretty good chance that and not pretty, but like there's a uh, there's like a very realistic yeah. chance that that could happen. And, I've said, and I just thought that was a good talking point. So phrase that however you would like for would you rather. And I do but, think this year more so than any other. 
and then maybe not any other. But this year, for certain, there's been a proliferation of quarterback talent to where there's going to be a lot of good offenses. Where if you that are with good receivers, yeah. right? Tom Brady, Joe Burrow, Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, and, Patrick Mahomes, all in good. Matt Stafford, yeah. And if you are one of those teams, good receivers, you're not just going to be able to win games. You know, twenty-seven to thirteen, you're going to have to put up forty in a lot of these games, in a lot of these matchups to win. So, oh, what were the odds again? What's the odds for yes? What do I get? Um, let me throw it back up here. So it's plus 350, or no, excuse me, plus 250, yes. Let's no, go, yes. minus 350. I'm going, yes. And that's what I'm saying. Like, it's, it just up. seems like the value is good there. But uh, I, again, it was yeah. just more for the uh, I like it. For the argument. Yeah, I like it. All right. There you have it. The Would You Rather segment. On Monday, we'll be doing a little NFL recap. Week one, finally fucking here. Thank you, God. All right. See you guys then. Till next time. Oh, 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 oh,